This is such an emotional roller coaster, this yeah, one. And yeah. I was wondering for you, the challenges, I mean, coming in as mm. the fifth director, you yeah. know, so, well, fourth, realistically, yeah. um, you know, it must have been for you, was it a little bit scary at first coming onto the set with a crew and a cast that all knew each other? Was it, you know, a little nervous for you? Do you know, it, that, the nerves lasted for about two minutes. And the very first nerves, I could, David Heyman, who produces, kind of walked me onto a set of Mike's film, Mike, who did Goblet of Fire. So he, he brought me, and it was like walking into a kind of Roman auditorium. And it was a second unit shot, and you know, second units, you kind of think, well, that's four blokes in the camera, isn't it? This second unit yeah. was like 150 people, and like 30 foot up in the air was Dan on a broomstick. And there were these big wind machines, and there was Jamie, the second unit director, screaming through a megaphone. And it was all, and it was like, I thought, bloody hell, this is huge. And I had a flutter in my tummy at that point that lasted five minutes. And then you know what? It was, after that, it felt like coming home. It was really strange. I just kind of took to it like a duck to water. And I think it's because it felt like a very safe environment. You know, I'd never made a studio picture before. I always assumed when you made studio pictures, there was some team of execs who would always be fluttering around, looking over your shoulder but they kind of just let me get on with it. They were very excited about the dailies, they've been very positive and happy with the film. So I felt more or less like, well, this is pretty cool. I can just make the film I want to make, and I did. Welcome back to another episode of Not to Bomb Podcast. This is the podcast where we go back and talk about movies that bombed financially when they played in the movie theaters, or maybe the critics just didn't like it when it came out. Brad, this is this is the accounting episode, right? It is. Or the third pillar of that is, or the studio just says it's bombed. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's true. So typically, when we pick a film... We're picking it on on two forms of criteria, and and if we're lucky, they kind of uh, fit both. So the one is if you spend money producing a film, and then what is it? You typically take about two times its production, and that's it's mm-hmm. usually it's uh, you know marketing, distribution, all that other stuff. Yeah. So a movie has to clear two times of its production budget in order to be profitable. So we we try and look for films that that didn't make that back. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is looking at uh, review aggregators like Rotten Tomatoes, Metacritic, etc. Even IMDb does an aggregation system. And we try and find movies that just, they scored really low, right? So they either have a Rotten Tomato, um, they they show up in the threes or fours on a scale of one to 10. Yep. The movie we're talking about tonight, on its surface, doesn't meet any of that criteria. And we're, we're actually talking about a film that almost made a billion dollars from a box office perspective. And is part of one of the most successful franchises of all time. So you pick this one. What are we talking about? Yeah. So we're going to review the fifth Harry Potter film, Harry fought Harry Potter and the order of the Phoenix. Yes. Um, I, I, I have to tell you, Troy, I am not a huge Harry Potter person. Um, when I went to watch this one, 
I didn't watch all the other ones. I had seen them before. Um, my approach was more, could you just watch this movie and have a small knowledge of the past films and enjoy this one? Um, I know your approach was a little bit different. Yeah. I don't, I don't like the Harry Potter movies. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I, well, I liked one of them. Um, I've only watched these films one time in the theater and uh, I got to be totally honest. I mean, when we share our thoughts, I've, I've been trying to go through all of these and I made it up to the film that we're talking about. I still have three more to go and I will finish that. I haven't seen any of the newer ones, the Fantastic Beasts. Oh, yeah, I haven't either. Yeah. And, and the reason why I never even bothered with the other ones is I just I didn't enjoy my time with this original franchise or series. So I was really curious to go back and and look at this. I want to say my my first time seeing these films, I thought the first one and the second one directed by Chris Columbus were pretty good. They're okay. I really enjoyed the third one, Prisoner of Azkaban. And then from there, I just had zero fun um, and and really didn't appreciate the franchise from there. But I but before we dive into this, I think we Are just talk about the elephant in the room. Yeah. I mean, leave it to us to pick a movie that quite honestly has a lot of controversy around it. So Brad and also I also the creator. Yes. Yeah. But we, we've talked about this off air. So Harry Potter as a franchise has come under fire because of its creator and some comments that she has been making uh, for a little bit. And, and this is one of the things that we've kind of talked about early um, in the show when this ever comes up. And I, f- I feel it's time to kind of reiterate that by, by talking about this film, we're, we're not going to talk about, I would say, the drama or what's going on from a social perspective. Our, our, our intent is to talk about the movie and the franchise mm-hmm. and um, maybe even celebrate some of the good things about the franchise that aren't related to its creator. And, and to be fair, when this film came out, that stuff wasn't out yet. So it had nothing to do with the box office performance. If I think if that would have, if she would have said it while these films were coming out and it bombed, maybe we would talk about it then because that would factor yeah, it becomes into an influence, right? Of, yeah. Of but, the result. But that's, you know, it's, it's, it's taking the arts and looking at it separate from the artists. And if you don't agree with that, that's totally fine. I, I get that. But Troy and I have always said, look, we can, we can look at things separately and, and not agree or disagree or agree, whatever with what the person says and um, just review or discuss the film on its own. And that's what we are going to do. Because I think the reason we chose this one in particular, because there's a lot of what we will get into these Hollywood accounting films is we have evidence of what the studio did. Um, There's a leaked financial report that basically breaks down all the costs Um, and so it's easy to use this one because it's literally out in the open. Um, a lot of the financials of films aren't really public every time we, not every time, but most of the time when we report on a budget of a film, it's always reported. It's usually not confirmed by the studio. Yeah. We don't, Um, we don't get to see the accounting sheets. We're basically looking at information we find off the internet and saying, if this is the reported budget, take that times two 
And that's the criteria. Every once in a while, you'll get somebody who produces something that says, hey, even though this may have made, you know, twice back what it cost to produce it, you know, the studio still may lose a hundred million. You see those articles pop up all the time, yep, yep. especially for high profile films. So uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania is starting to starting to get some traction there because it's making some money. But when people are talking about the financials, they're saying, hey, this this could either break even or just lose a little bit of money, a little bit of money. Yep. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we just <laughs> to me, this is one of those things where, you know, things are going to happen behind the scenes with one individual. And especially if they're an individual that is one of the primary creatives of a franchise, you, you don't necessarily want to take away from the work that comes from like in this case, David Yates, the director yeah, or, or Daniel the thousands Radcliffe. of other people who made the Harry Potter films, right? Yeah. It's and and in fact, down to the person who catered this film, like they're, <laughs> that's not their fault. Like, absolutely. Yeah. So we're, we're going to sidestep all of that. You can easily go on the internet. There are tons of articles that will take you down that rabbit hole. I think Brad and I read a little bit about this week and it was, it was one of those like, Hey, what are we getting into? Um, and there was a video game around this franchise that got released this year that kind of stirred all that up again. Mm -hmm. uh, our intent here is to really use this as an example, uh, of like an interesting, I, I don't know, just uh, an interesting fallout of what happens when a movie makes a ton of money and the studio says, Hey, we don't, we don't want to have to pay taxes <laughs> yeah. um, or, or share any of that wealth. Right. Yep. Yep. Bef before we jump in, I have a quick question. Okay. So Harry Potter is a beloved franchise, even with all of the stuff going around with JK Rowling, beloved franchise. I believe the franchise is the wizarding world, right? The wizarding. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm going to believe you. I am not. Okay. I, you and I are definitely not the Harry Potter experts, right? We are not. We are not. I am married to a Harry Potter expert at one point in time. I know a lot of them. I, I get tons of grief for not uh, having enough appreciation or love for the films. I've never read the books. Uh, my kids have. They love them. I, I just have a question, though. In all of the franchises that exist out there, what's your favorite franchise? Uh, my gut says Star Wars. By far. Okay. Um, but that's, I feel like that's kind of the cop-out answer for for people my age and your age. Like Star Wars is so influential to us. Um, I would also say I like the Lord of the Rings franchise, but then I don't really like the Hobbit films. So I stick to like post the Hobbit. Um, and I don't know. I like a lot of the X-Men stuff, um, but then you have to take, some of the good with the bad with that. But I, I think I would say star Wars is my first. And then like maybe alien is up there really high for me too. Okay. Um, so those are some of mine that I was just thinking about today. Um, most of the time, like the matrix, like I love the first matrix. I like the second matrix. I like reloaded quite a bit. Revolutions is a little bit of a mess. Well, it's a lot of a mess. And then resurrection or whatever the newest one was, um, didn't really do it for me. So it's like, I like two films out of the four series. Um, I don't know, maybe John wicks up there too. Probably. Yeah. For like American stuff. Yeah. I, I, you know, if we're, if we're talking about like foreign stuff, like police story. Yes. Oh my you know, gosh. Stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I look at it this way. If we were, if we were talking about, uh, trilogies 
if, if you're saying what is the greatest trilogies out there, I, I would say you'd name two of them, the original Star Wars trilogy, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, I, I believe it or not, actually like the first three Matrix films. The, the second and third ones are not as good as the first one, but I, I still find them interesting. If you put on the third one, I would watch it right now with you. Like I have no problem with it. Yeah. It's kind of a mess, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. But if, if we're talking franchises, like the consistency, so, so you're talking through and through, I would actually say my favorite franchise that I've watched and has retained some sort of consistency outside of just like a set of films. So even police story, I, I think police story has a great trilogy and I like new police story. I got excited when they announced new police story too. He's going to be working mm -hmm. on that. Yeah. Um, but I think it's police story 2013. It, it, it's just okay. Mm -hmm. Like it falters, but um, the franchises that come to mind that are my favorite that I actually think stand on quality. Like number one is the Zatoichi film series. I oh, think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 100%. There's not a bad one in there. I love all those films. Just love them. I mean, there's like 27, right? Yeah, there's, there's a bunch. Yeah. Um, the other franchise that comes to mind where I think even when it's not hitting its highs and it's just middle of the road, it's still really good is the James Bond franchise. I was going to mention James Bond as well. Yeah, I, I think I think that one's always interesting. Even, even when you go back and you go, wow, some of those <laughs> early ones are problematic in today's environment. Yeah. They're still fun to watch. Um, Again. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a, <laughs> it's history, right? Yeah. Um, the other ones that I think of maybe not from a quality, but fun factor, the Godzilla franchise, I adore. Mm -hmm. um, I think they're getting ready to show a, a Godzilla film here in a couple of days in the theater. I'm kind of excited about uh, one of those fat, fathom event. Uh, is it fathom fathom? F A T H. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Uh, and then the last one, which I think is a franchise that, uh, started out really good. And with each additional film has just knocked my socks off is mission impossible. And, and oh, that yes. includes oh, mission yes, impossible yes. too. Cause I would, I would vouch for the John Woo film too. Yeah. It's ridiculous, but yeah, you're right. The, the mission impossible is definitely up there. I also, while you were talking if you're just talking like straight trilogies, I, I do kind of like, and I'm not a Star Trek guy, but I like those JJ Abrams, Star Trek movies a lot. They're really fun. Uh, yeah, I would, I would actually vouch for the majority of the Star Trek movies. Um, okay. I'm kind of, I mean, everybody says, what is it? The even ones of the original series are the best ones, but I think there's a little bit to like, even in the odd number ones, <laughs> even five, which is, I think the one that Shatner directed is kind of goofy. Yeah. Um, but no, I, if, if we're talking franchises that are consistently good and even when they're, when they're just not at the, at the, the apex, they still deliver something that's really entertaining. I think it comes down to Zatoichi, James Bond, Mission Impossible. Those, those are the three that when you look at all of their entries, um, there's, there, I don't know that it's, it's hard to find a bad film in my opinion in those. Yeah. Like if, if you're looking at say mission impossible and the worst one you come up with mission impossible two, I think you're doing pretty good. Yeah. Cause, Cause I, that's entertaining as hell. You might, the story might be ridiculous and all this stuff, but it is an entertaining film. Yes. Well, <clears throat> let's talk about the wizard dream wizardry wizardry. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. 
whatever the the wizard world of Harry Potter. So, Harry Potter Order of Phoenix. We're talking about a film that came out in 2007. It is the fifth installment. These are all based on the novels um, or the series of novels written by J.K. Rowling. I thought this was interesting. So Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone was released on the 26th of June in 1997. And um, as of February 2023, the books have sold more than 600 million copies worldwide, making them the best-selling book series in history and have been available in 85 languages. The last four books consecutively set records as the fastest selling books in history with the final installment selling roughly 2.7 million copies in the United Kingdom and 8.3 million copies in the United States within 24 hours of its release. That's how popular that, that, that book franchise is. I mean, I remember people camping out for those last books. Like it was a phenomenon that you don't see anymore. Like you don't see people lining up to buy things like that anymore. Yeah. It's mostly now for like iPhones and stuff like, but this was for a book and people were losing their minds. Absolutely. And what's amazing is how well this film series as a whole has done. So I know you're going to go through the numbers specifically on this film, but I thought I would run through the numbers of the franchise real quick. So in the U.S., the movie was not called Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. It was actually called Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Mm-hmm. It came out in 2001, so the book came out in 97. The first movie makes $1.017 billion on its release, right? Yep. Then the sequel comes out a year later, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. It makes a little bit less, $879 million. Then Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban comes out in 2004. It makes $797 million. So it's on a downward trajectory, but it's still making a lot of money, yeah. right? Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, 2005, $896 million. So now we're coming back up again. Coming back up. Now, the movie we're going to talk about tonight, and you'll you'll talk about this number, Brad, but it came in at $942 million was the box office receipts worldwide. All these are worldwide numbers. And it uh, takes a step back just a little bit. Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince in 2009 makes $934 million. It's ridiculous, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, then they take the last book and they split it into two films. You got Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1, which is in 2010, made $977 million. And here's the juggernaut right here. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2 comes out a year later in 2011, makes $1.3 billion. 1.3. Like, that's a lot of money. Billion dollars. Yep. It's incredible. Now, we're going to talk about Order of the Phoenix from 2007. And uh, when, when you told me this and you're like, hey, we're going to talk Harry Potter. I'm like, we can't. It, it made a gazillion dollars, man, or technically $942 million. But yep. Brad, we've, we've dubbed this one the accounting episode. Take us through what... $942 million in box office receipts. Well, like what happened to it? What gets it? To, okay. So released July 11th, 2007 reported budget of $200 million. And like you said, total box office receipts, $942 million. So you say, well, how come the uh, studio keeps saying that this movie failed at the box office? 
And that gets us kind of to our point of the episode, which is called um, Hollywood accounting, or so uh, some people call it creative accounting. Oh, it's very and creative. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so just kind of level set here and have a baseline knowledge of stuff. We're going to talk about a few words and just so everyone knows who they are. We have gross. So gross is like the income is the amount of money earned before any deductions and taxes taken out. Essentially, it's mostly taxes. Um, net is amount of money your business earns in a period of time, kind of minus all that. Um, it's basically at the very, it's like your bottom line. So anytime you hear someone say bottom line, that's your net because you're taking everything else out. And that's essentially what you're walking home with revenue, which is basically with films is sales receipts, right? So right. any tickets, all that stuff. Um, and then expenses is basically how much things cost to make. Um, so what is Hollywood accounting? So again, creative accounting is basically a practice, which kind of the whole purpose is to, to diminish profits. Um, it ensures that there's no net profit in Hollywood. Um, because movies are basically contractually uh, designed to be unprofitable. Um, what what do you mean by that? Contractually designed to be unprofitable. So again, so we'll get into um shares of a film or what they call in Hollywood are points. So a um star will say, "I will take twenty million dollars, and I will take points, net points on the back end." But that's not so, offered to all star. I mean, that's that's only well, off offered to they'll a few. Offer, they'll offer net points to anybody because like we're saying net points don't mean anything because that's at the very end and that's mm -hmm. after the studio has kind of taken everything out yeah so I, usually I, there are there I, are no net points yeah i'd always thought that that was sort of a practice where uh it, it just take a co-star supporting actor actress they may get royalties off something right mm -hmm. but to actually earn points or profit is usually reserved for not everybody in the film. It's a select people within the film. Usually they will ask for gross points. So gross points would be before anything is deducted. So mm -hmm. they will say, what is our, basically, what is it? What does it generate revenue wise? I get a piece of that. Um, it's basically revenue sharing as opposed to profit sharing. Um, and so they'll, big stars can demand that stuff. I think, um, Famously, I think. Um, well, Scarlett Johansson just did it for Black Widow, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, Sandra Bullock, I think she got like seventy million dollars for Gravity. Initially, her fee was twenty, and she got fifty on the back end for her points. Um, but, but that's rare. I mean, if you have a cast of a hundred people, a hundred people yes. are not getting points. Yes, and famously, Matt Damon was going to be given. 10% of net points of Avatar, and he turned it down. So we basically turned down two hundred million dollars. <laughs> Um, it's Matt Damon. He, yeah, he sleeps yeah. on two hundred million dollars every night. Yeah. So again, basically the biggest difference between Hollywood accounting and typical corporate accounting is like how employees are paid and like how we show profits and losses. Um, and it's not illegal. It's it's a basically an accepted form of um, accounting that you're allowed to do because you're not evading taxes. You're just not trying to give away uh, money to basically anyone can earn points, writers, directors, actors, producers, everyone. And so what essentially a company will do. So Troy and I are going to make a film and we're going to call it whatever. So we're going to make our own corporation 
And underneath our corporation, we're going to have a ton of different shell companies. Are you familiar with the shell company? It just yeah. basically is mm-hmm. a company by name only, essentially. Um, it's again not illegal. Think, um, I, I always I always equate to a shell company right. as like a. Uh, <laughs> Think of it as um, a subcategory, right? So mm-hmm. your company is a category. Uh, a shell kind company of like a is kind of like a, a yeah. Bit. It it just falls under it, and it's a way to kind of take a particular number and show it specific to that category versus, and it all rolls up, right? Yeah. Yep. So essentially, the point of a shell company is basically to siphon all the money through different points of mm-hmm. the process. So you have a shell company for your marketing and advertising and distribution and everything. Everything would have a shell company. And then essentially those shell companies are just a way for the the, the corporation above all those shell companies to simply kind of expense things out to then essentially pay themselves back. So they're not really paying these shell companies. They're only doing it through paperwork, essentially. Um, again, this is totally not illegal. It's a total legit. I don't want to say legit because it's, you could argue it's unethical, but it's accepted. Um, but again, the whole goal is to hide profit. Um, normally in a corporate setting, um, you would have shell companies to kind of hide losses because your shareholders don't want to see losses on your books. Um, so that's kind of a big difference between corporate accounting and, Hollywood accounting is Hollywood never wants to show a profit. Corporate America never wants to show losses. Well, I'm you can argue yes, no, but it's essentially kind of the big difference. Well, they, they still have investor. It, it's tricky. You, you want to show profit. You want to show growth for a studio, but a film, which a is film doesn't have to be profitable. A film doesn't have to be a profitable, but a studio does. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, this is all on paper. Right. So we we are then um, when you're billing yourself, that revenue just comes right back to you. So on paper, if we lose X amount of dollars, we really didn't lose that money. We just charged ourselves and didn't pay ourselves for that. Um, so you can thank Warren Beatty for kind of this practice um, in the 60s. I think when he did Bonnie and Clyde, uh, he earned like an additional like. 40% on the back end. And then Hollywood was like, wait a minute, we can't, we can't do this. So they came up with um, this Hollywood accounting trick to kind of, again, make sure that all films that they want to don't show a profit. Do you want some more examples of films that on paper failed miserably? Yes. This, this fascinates me because I think there's a general consensus or you, you see numbers come out, right? And you go, well, take Harry Potter, for example, uh, the movie we're talking about tonight, $942 million. Yeah. So uh, do we, here, we'll go into that first. Yeah. So the film, so the, the Warner brothers entertainment incorporated, um, basically leaked, had someone leak some of their financials and, um, the, few things that stood out to me is so total defined gross again, gross kind of before anything is taken out was $612 million roughly. Um, this isn't the very end of the run. Cause I think it was only 
through like the end of July. So this would have just been the first month. But that's the studio um, take. So whatever yeah. whatever the top number is, the very first thing you got to take out is theater distribution. Yeah, which is usually 30 to 50%. It, it um, depends. So yeah. what theaters will do is um, as a movie plays, what, what makes a movie like Avatar so unique and why theaters love Avatar is the very first week of release, most of the money goes to the studio. Mm-hmm. By week two, a little bit less money goes to the studio. By the time you get to week five and six, now you have a theater actually earning most of that ticket price. Yeah. So Avatar was really good for theaters because when a studio comes in, they'll say, hey, we want we want this movie to play in your, your top tier theater that seats the most people, but we may take 90% of the profit, you get 10. You're gonna make your money first week off concession sales. But by week five or six, now the studio might be taking 20% and the studio keeps 80%. So if that movie is still doing really well, from an accounting perspective, now the theater's winning and the studio got most of their their money up front. Yeah, and there's also why we also have the burn and churn as well where films will be in the theater and then immediately leave um, because it might not be profitable for the studio to share that profit um, if a film isn't doing great, so they'll just pull it. Um, so anyway, so the one of the line items I found very funny um, was that the distribution fee for the film, basically the studio paid itself $211 million. Wow. Uh, so that comes out <laughs> of the gross, uh, leaving with about $400,000. Um, and then kind of at the end, they do some funny math and call it a negative cost and or advance. And they deduct $316 million. So at the end of the day, they say on paper that Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix lost them $167 million wow. on paper. Now, we all know it didn't. Right. We all know it probably made them roughly $500 million. But on paper, they are saying it lost $167 million. So when you think of Hollywood accounting, this is what they're doing. So, again, essentially trying to hide all this profit by basically funneling money through these shell companies to pay themselves. Um, one of the things I did want to bring up is we've been hearing a lot of stuff about the Batgirl film and how they were using it as a write-off. Write-off is a little bit different. Um, a write-off is more on your tax burden, so your tax liability. Say at the end of the year we have a $500 million tax liability. We can essentially take that $90 million as a deduction, and now we're a little bit closer to $400 million. So kind of what people do is they try to get their tax burden down as much as possible. Studios will do that uh, right off stuff to get that tax burden down to as close to zero as possible um, on their taxable income. So just some things to talk about, but yeah, $167 million on a film that made almost, you know, a billion dollars. Unbelievable. Really? Yeah. Totally legal. And if anybody did have points on that, so again, points are not given to every actor or actress. But if somebody walks into that deal and says, okay, I'm going to, and the way it'll work is they may say, well, you know what, instead of taking 25 million as a fee, I'll take 15, but I'm getting one point of the net profit. Mm-hmm. And so what they're banking on is the franchise is going to be successful. Uh, they're they're going to get a piece of the revenue, especially if that film does well. 
if the studio comes back and says, well, hey, sorry about your luck, we paid you that 15 million, but on paper, we're not showing any kind of profitability, then that's an expense that they don't have to pay. Yep. And yep. They're, they can keep it themselves. Yeah, there are some very interesting stories about even some of the franchises we've talked about where this accounting uh, has come into play. There's a, there's a really good article. I think this all started from an article that came out that was listing um, Hollywood accounting practices, and it talked about several different movies, right? You were going to mention a couple of movies yeah. or franchises that were high profile that this this type of practice has has been kind of known to occur. Yeah, so uh, one of the big ones is Return of the Jedi. Cost mm-hmm. $32.5 million, made four seventy five. dollars was a negative on paper. Yeah. Batman 1989 made... Um, over four hundred and eleven million dollars. Um, the studio says it cost them thirty, almost thirty-six million dollars. They almost lost thirty-six million dollars. Also, Tom Hanks in Forrest Gump made six hundred and seventy-seven point nine million dollars against a fifty-five million dollar budget. Um, the writer of the book was supposed to get some points on the back end, didn't get any because basically uh, of this accounting practice. Stan Lee was screwed out of points for the first Spider-Man film that made $821.7 million worldwide on a $139 million budget. And then this is not one that is surprising to me. Uh, Fahrenheit 9-11 cost $6 million to make, made $222.4 million, and Michael Moore had to sue to get some points on the back end because the Weinstein said there was nothing to come back to him. On. Yeah. And I, I want to say one of the more famous ones that came out of um, COVID when, when theater started opening up was Scarlett Johansson and Black Widow. Yes. yes. So there was, there was a big, um, I don't know if it actually went to trial, but there was impending they lawsuits. Because they and, were, they were going to lose. Yeah. They were going to lose based on the accounting practices. Well, and also I think there was like a guarantee that it was going to be in the theater for mm-hmm. a certain period of time, because look, if you're an actor or an actress, you want your film to be in the theater as long as possible because we all know DVD, Blu-ray, 4K sales is nothing. So the most you're going to get um, is it when it's in the theater. And if you have an interest on the back end on that, you want it to stay in the theater as long as possible. So anyway, so that is how we got to the fact that Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix is technically on paper a loss to the studio of $167 million. A box office it, bomb. One of the box o- biggest box office bombs we talked about then, technically. Technically, on paper, this would be one of the biggest, yes. That's um, crazy. Yeah, yeah. So opening weekend in the United States, it makes $77 million. That's good enough for first place. And it beats films like Transform- Transformers, Ratatouille, Live Free or Die Hard, License to Wed, 1408, Evan Almighty, Knocked Up, Sicko, and uh, Ocean's 13. So a lot of uh, big summer releases there. Um, Critically, Harry Potter and the Order of Phoenix sits at a 78% on Rotten Tomatoes with the audience score of 81. So audience likes it right in line with the critics. Troy, do you know who does not like this film? Ooh, uh, we haven't heard from them in a long time. We have not because we've been doing some weird obscure 80s films and stuff like that. But the movie guide review 
for those of you who are not familiar, Movie Guide reviews films not for their quality, but for their content, for their little Christian eyes. And boy, the uh, witchcraft in this film got them all in a tizzy. They, they didn't Troy. give it a negative four, did they? It is a negative four. Oh my goodness! Oh wow! Well, okay, I totally buy into that though. So, based what do you on think the first? What do you think the first sentence of the review is, Troy? Pagan worldviews. Very strong pagan worldview <laughs> mixed with very strong occult pro witchcraft elements, where the mm-hmm. hero and his friends conquer evil villains through evil means, i.e., witchcraft. With some brief talk about the importance of love and friendship, and people wish one another Merry Christmas, and one idiomatic reference to prayer, uh, but in an occult contents with no God centered theology, plus some anthropocentric neo pagan wow, false religious talk about choosing the good within you with no appeal to God or Jesus Christ, who is the only way truth and life. They just put that in there to let you know and immoral pagan politically correct anti-conservative elements where breaking the rules is applauded and using discipline is given a stereotypical treatment so that those who use it are considered insufferable evil snobs, two obscenities, and several mentions of the English word bloody, oh. strong, sometimes scary action violence, with only a little blood, includes evil race, attack two teenagers, teenagers using witchcraft against evil race, witchcraft spells block knock people off their feet many times, witches and warlocks battle one another using fantasy witchcraft. Teacher forces here to use magic quill pen to painfully wound his hands. Some magical explosions, magical explosions, shattered glass. Villain uses witchcraft to make high shelves fall on running children. Oh, one or two yeah. punches. Hero has nightmares of villain attacking other people. And villain invades hero's mind and even tries to possess him at one point. No explicit sex, but Troy. What? Two teenagers do kiss several times in a romantic moment. No nudity, no alcohol, no smoking, and rebellion, anger, disobedience. Breaking the rules is seen as exciting. And hero abandons girlfriend after villain forces her to tell an important secret. Minus four. For a minute there, I thought you were talking like a Clash album from from the punk rock era or something. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is very (laughs) punk rock. Okay. Films you could have seen July of 2007. We have Transformers, like we've already mentioned, which made over a billion dollars. License to Wed. Rescued on the remake. Uh, Let me scroll down here. Because there's some big ones. Ah, Hairspray. I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. Hairspray made three hundred million dollars. Yeah, and I pronounce you Chuck and Larry made two fifty five. Um, the that. Simpsons movie on its way to six twenty five. I know who killed me for Jose. Yeah, no reservations, and that is about it. Wow, Chuck and Larry two hundred fifty five. Mm-hmm. Wow, to to know that that movie and Transformers made so much money, uh, it. It makes, makes me sad. question humanity a little bit. I'm not going to lie. Uh, okay. Well, okay. That's pretty interesting. Let's talk about the people who made the film, right? Starting with those behind the camera. Director David Yates. So, I look, I don't know who this guy was outside of Harry Potter movies. And sure enough, when you look at his filmography, he made a lot of, you know, British TV films. 
and uh, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix was a big hit. And from then on, he's just doing everything in this world. So mm -hmm. the rest of the Harry Potter movies are directed by him. He takes a break, does The Legend of Tarzan in 2016, and then comes back and does all the Fantastic Beast films, which I hear those got into some financial trouble as they went along too. Those actually might be bombs. I think that last one might be a bomb. Yeah, actually. we might we might have to visit those. Um, screenplay by Michael Goldenberg. Now <laughs> you're you're gonna love you're gonna love this filmography. <laughs> Bed of Roses, 1996. Contact, 1997. Man, I don't I do like, like. I do like. I don't mm, like Contact. It's a little boring, but I kind of like it. I like everything up to the end. I think oh, it's a yes. really interesting film. And man, talk about one of the most anticlimactic endings in a film of all time. I believe they call that a wet fart of an ending. Yeah, it's 100%. So then he goes on to do Peter Pan in 2003, Harry Potter and the Order of Phoenix in 2007, and a film that we will talk about this year, Green Lantern in 2011. Yeah, this whew, not a not a great track record. I'm not. I'm gonna be honest with you. <laughs> I believe Peter Pan was a huge bomb too. Probably. I I barely remember it. Uh, we talked about um, you know the other credit from a screenplay perspective. It's based on characters from J.K. Rowling. Uh, let's talk about cinematography. So, man, I'm I could <laughs> butcher this name. Slowomir Idziak. Uh, That's probably pretty good. Yeah. Okay. Here's, here's a little bit of a selected filmography. I thought this was interesting. I don't know if you've ever saw the, the three colors trilogy. Uh -huh. Um, yep. okay. So he did blue, which came out in 93. Um, some other films that he worked on Gattaca in 97 proof of life in 2000 block black Hawk down in 2001. Uh, the guy Ritchie King Arthur film in 2004 and leading no, up to Antoine Fuqua. Oh, that was Antoine Fuqua. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. King Arthur, 2004, Antoine Fuqua. Uh, Harry Potter and Order of Phoenix in 2007. Uh, editor, Mark Day, which I think he worked a lot with David Yates. Because again, if you look at his A lot of Harry Potter. It's a lot of Harry Potter, a lot of Fantastic Beasts. He also worked on Legend of Tarzan. And uh, another film that kind of popped up in the, in the filmography, which I thought was interesting, was Ex Machina in 2014. Yeah, I love that movie. Yeah, such a good film. Uh, the cast say what you will about Harry Potter. Boy, do they stack the cast? They do. It would take us an hour to sit here and go through the filmography of everybody. I thought it would be really cool to just talk about our three leads real quick and then just mention who else is in the film. Okay. Because I'm curious on your opinion, Brad, we'll start with Daniel Radcliffe as Harry Potter. Kid comes out of nowhere, all of a sudden owns the world and is making a billion dollars in these movies, right? Mm -hmm. What do you think of him as an actor post Harry Potter? I I like him kind of steering away from Harry Potter. He's done a lot of interesting things. Um, I haven't seen the Weird Al movie just yet, but I heard he's spectacular in that. Yes, um, I do want to see I that. Yep. Um, I like his choices. I like him kind of challenging himself and not relying on being a child actor. I will say, I think their his performance in these films is really good. I think he is a talented actor. Um, and I, I've liked his choices a lot. I haven't seen everything, but you know, I do like what I've seen. 
Um, at least he's going for it. Oh, 100%. I, you know, whatever you think about the Harry Potter films, man, talk about picking three leads um, between Daniel Radcliffe, Emma Watson, and Rupert Grint. They they scored big on those three. And specifically with Daniel Radcliffe, I, I'm with you 100%. I think he's one of the best things about the franchise. He's really good. But I love the stuff that he did post-Harry Potter. Because when you go back and look at his filmography, he's got stuff like... Um, he did horror films, the women in black horns. Oh yeah. Um, he, d- he does these goofy independent films like Swiss army man, uh, guns akimbo, which is a lot of fun. I would love to talk about that film. Then he does some mainstream stuff. I think last year he was in the lost city with Sandra Bullock played, um, I, I guess the, the bad guy in that film and, uh, super excited to watch weird, the Al Yankovic story, when I found out Umbrella Entertainment was doing a 4K, I did not mm-hmm. watch the streaming. I'm, I'm waiting for that thing to come in. Yep. But yeah, he's fantastic. And that, that leads us to Emma Watson. Uh, what, what's your opinion on her? Um, I, you know, I think the thing with her is I wish she would do more. Um, she's not in as much stuff as I would like her to be, or at least I've seen, like, she was in that Noah movie, which isn't great, but I liked her in Bling, the Bling Ring, I mm-hmm. think is what it was called. And then uh, The Perks of Being a Wallflower, I liked. I think that's about what all I've seen of her. Uh, she doesn't work as much as Radcliffe, but I do think she will probably do more later. So I'm, I'm hopeful that she, we see her pop up more. Yeah. Again, if you, if you look at what she did post Harry Potter, I think she's stretching her acting chops. You talked about perks of being a wallflower, the bling ring. Uh, this is the end. I think she had a part in that, that little mm-hmm. comedy. Yep. Uh, Beauty and the Beast 2017, oh, which that's was another right. she was Belle. Yeah. yeah. And then 2019's Little Women. Uh, she was fantastic in that as well. I think, I think our good friend uh, Alex loves that film. He was the one that was just pushing that on me the year it came out. Do I need to see that? Yeah. You, you need to see Little Women. Okay. Yeah. It's I'll really check good. it out. And that leaves us with Ron Weasley himself, Rupert Grant. Now, out of the three, I don't think he's had the high-profile success that the other two has had. If you kind of look at his filmography, it's been a little all over the place. Uh, I, I thought it was interesting. I didn't even know there was a Snatch TV series that came out for like a couple of years. The Guy Ritchie film had a TV series in 27, 2018. Oh, yes. He played yes. Charlie in that. Uh, and most recently, you can see him in Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. He's an episode of that. And this year, he was in a little bit of a surprise hit called Knock at the Cabin, mm-hmm. the M. Night Shyamalan film. Uh, here's one. I, I, I'll just throw it out there. Ron Weasley is probably one of my favorite characters out of this entire franchise. He is the Han Solo equivalent. In Harry Potter, I know that we all deserve made. to have a friend like Ron. Yes, absolutely, and and he's one of the highlights. He's one that I wish, I really wish, uh, he had done more stuff like Daniel and Emma. There's still time, yeah. right? I mean, they're thirty, what thirty, probably so thirty-five. So they've got plenty of time. Oh yeah, and and he's he's shown up in a couple of things like Moonwalkers, mm-hmm. uh, Charlie Countryman. I mean, he he's out there working. I just wish he had a few more high-profile things. Okay, for this film, oh my God, this this list of names, Brad, listen to this. Brendan Gleeson, Alistair Mad-Eye Moody, Ray Fiennes, Lord Voldemort, Gary Oldman, Sirius Black, David Thewlis, 
Remus Lupin. I love these names too. <laughs> Michael Gambon as Albus Dumbledore. Imelda Staunton, Dolores Umbridge. Tom Felton as Draco Malfoy. Uh, Ivana Lynch as Luna Lovegood. Now she's a newer character that shows up in this film. Alan Rickman, the scene-stealing Alan Rickman as uh, Severus Snape. You get Emma Thompson. She doesn't have as big a role in this one, I don't think, as the previous film, but she shows up. Uh, Warwick Davis is running around in the background um, as Phileas Flitwick. We get an another new character shows up. Uh, she plays a bad guy. Helena Bonham Carter, Bellatrix Lestrange. We get Robbie Coltrane revising his uh, Rubus Hagrid. Um, now, this person was heavily, I guess, in the last film, but he shows up as sort of a ghost now or, or an image or memory, Robert Pattinson. Mm -hmm. And uh, didn't realize this, that when he was showing up in Harry Potter a year later, he would be in the Twilight series. I yep. kind of thought Twilight came first, but that's not the case. And lastly, Maggie Smith as Minerva yeah. McGongle. Yeah, just this list of names. Again, if you're looking for fantastic actors and actresses to be put in front of any kind of franchise, you cannot go wrong with this list. It's fantastic. They did not cheap out on actors for these films. You could say whatever you want about this series. They went and got people. Yeah. And they all bring mostly it. British, you know, mostly yeah. British actors, but yeah. And they're all fantastic. Okay. Production and development. So British television director, David Yates was chosen to direct the film after Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire director, Mike Newell, as well as Jean-Pierre Jeanette, Guillermo del Toro, Matthew Vaughn and Mira Nair turned down offers. Those could have been potential directors. Ooh, the Guillermo del Toro version of this is, would have been uh, amazing. Yeah. Um, Yates believed he was approached because the studio saw him fit to handle an edgy and emotional film with a political backstory, which some of his previous television projects, including state of play sex traffic and the girl in the cafe demonstrated producer, David Heyman supported Yates comments about the film's political theme stating that quote, Order of the Phoenix is a political film, not with a capital P, but it's about teen rebellion and the abuse of power. David has made films in the UK about politics without being heavy handed. On the film's political and social aspects, Emma Watson stated that somehow it talks about life after July 7th, the way people behave when they're scared, the way truth is often denied, and all the things our society has to face. Facing the fact that the authority is corrupted means having a nonconformist approach to reality and power. The reason why I bring that up is it is important to know that this film did come out and you know, it, it is made with a lot of um, British actors, people also um, behind the camera. July 7th um, in 2005 were the London bombings mm -hmm. also referred yep. to as seven, seven. So that's where a series of four connected suicide attacks carried out by Islamic terrorists in London targeted commuters traveling on the city's public transport system during the money, the morning rush hour. So it, it is important to know Harry Potter is, is set after that event, right? Choreographer Paul Harris, who had previously worked with David Yates several times, created a physical language for wand combat to choreograph the wand fighting scenes. Ivana Lynch won the role of Luna Lovegood over 15,000 other girls who attended the open casting call, 
waiting in a line of hopefuls that stretched a mile long. Uh, that's that's insane to me. <laughs> but I mean, this is the the height of Harry Potter, right? Yeah. The film required over 1,400 visual effects shots, and the London-based company Double Negative created more than 950 of them. Working for six months on pre-visualization starting in September 2005, Double Negative was largely responsible for sequences in the Room of Requirement, the Forbidden Forest, the Hall of Prophecies, and the Death Chamber. A new character in the film, Grop, which was Hagrid's Hagrid's brother. Hagrid's half-brother, yep. Uh, came to life by a new technology called soul capturing developed by image metrics. Instead of building the character from scratch, the movements and facial expressions of actor Tony Maudsley were used to model Grop's actions. Hmm. Okay. At 766 pages in the British edition and 870 in the American edition, order of the Phoenix is the longest book in the Harry Potter series. However, the film is the second shortest. Uh, and, and here's my favorite fun fact about the production and development. So the screenwriter had to actually cut a lot of the Quidditch sequences out of the film. And I, I think that's fantastic because I, I'm just going to say right now, this Quidditch thing in these Harry it's Potter dumb. films so stupid. is the dumbest thing I think has ever been committed to. Like, I do not understand it whatsoever. Uh, and especially how it's portrayed in the first two films where you basically have a bunch of people flying around hitting a ball. Um, to so not a green screen. Yeah, I guess. And really at the end of the day, if you just catch the small ball, then you win the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. Why would you not just have one goalie and like seven people going after the small ball? I never understood that. But uh, the reason why it was a big deal to fans, why Quidditch was uh, cut out of this film is this was supposed to be the movie that our, our, Ron character was going to join the Quidditch team and you were going to see some growth of character by him going through these Quidditch challenges. But because of trying to trim down the book to fit into the film, they cut all of that out and uh, Rupert Grint wasn't exactly happy. He was really looking forward to the Quidditch stuff, but sadly he didn't get to do it. I would say that's a benefit to all the viewers because I will tell you right now, I grade these things on how much Quidditch is in the film And if there's like none in it, then I'm like, wow, that was a pretty good Harry Potter film. So, uh, but yeah, you, you can, I got to say this also about the Warner brother releases for these movies. If you want to know anything about the making of these films, they're those discs, especially the 4k's, they look fantastic, but the special features, they are just packed to the brim with everything you want to know about anything Harry Potter related. So if you're a fan, you got to own that stuff, right? I believe uh, home media sales of this film were as over two hundred million dollars. So if the if the senior really did lose one hundred and sixty seven million dollars on the production and development of this film, it made it back on the home media. So it had you know, to. Maybe some people could get some points. Yeah, I don't. I I mean, they definitely didn't make it on the Quidditch video game because I I saw that there was a Quidditch video game. Oh god! Uh, and people actually play this sport in yeah, real life. I've seen people at the park play quidditch how do you play quidditch at the park i don't i, I don't know i've seen them like running around acting like flying on broomsticks yep okay hey teach their own man i you know truth be told i wouldn't mind going larping sometime just to see what that all is all about but if there's a flying around on broomsticks or quidditch i will not participate in that 
Uh, that's where my nerdum starts or stops. Excuse me. Okay. So anything else to share on the behind the scenes before we get into talking about this film? Uh, not really. No. Okay. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to share our thoughts on the fifth installment of Harry Potter and um, see what this revisit was like for both of us. So stay tuned. Time for refreshment. Refreshment. For your enjoyment, there's hot, fresh popcorn, tempting, delicious hot dogs, and so many kinds of ice cream. And of course, sparkling, delicious, ice-cold Coca-Cola for everybody at the refreshment counter now. Remember, your favorite snack will taste especially good with world-famous ice-cold Coca-Cola. There is nothing new under the sun, but under the small green fourth moon of Yavin, there is quite a different story. <laughs> Director George Lucas and 20th Century Fox present Star Wars. Skywalker is on a daring mission to rescue a beautiful princess, and all he needs is a little help from his friends. Han Solo, space pirate, and Chewie, his giant Wookiee, C-3PO, human relations cyborg, and his counterpart R2-D2, and the mysterious Jedi Knight. Never before in the history of movies has so much time and technology been spent just for fun. Star Wars. PG. Parental guidance suggested. Brad, here we are. The critics like this film. Harry Potter fans like this film. What did you think of this film? Yeah, so just to reiterate, I did not watch the other previous four before this one. I had seen them before. I have kids. I have a wife who loves Harry Potter. So I've seen those in passing and I've seen them all the way through a few times. So I kind of know the big beats of each of the films. But this is the first time I think I've sat down and really taken in a Harry Potter film like critically in a way. Did you watch um, it by yourself or with uh-huh, the family? Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, right. I just, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to be that person like asking Natalie, like, who's this person? What are they doing? Who's this? Who's this? <laughs> so I just watched it to say like, Hey, can someone just come into this film and appreciate it for being a film? And I gotta say, I kind of enjoyed it. Um, it I was really, kind of enthralled by the story. Um, I think it's a little bit over long and there's some flashback stuff that I think it's just like just dragging the audience along a little bit, but overall I really liked it. I, the thing that I took away this time that I hadn't before was just how dodgy a lot of the CGI is like it is the CGI in this film is bad. Like, is there any sequences that you you think stand out from that perspective that so are real dodgy? Anything? There's a lot of them, like where you can clearly see that they are standing in front of a green screen. The uh, where they're all 
stating like the mystery of like with all the prophecy stuff. Um, that's really bad. The showdown at the end in that chamber is really bad. Um, when they're fl- anytime they're flying, um, when the two twins are flying in the uh, dining hall doing the fireworks, that they're the way they fly is really bad. I was like, for two hundred million dollars, I was surprised at how bad it looked. And then you get to thinking, well, there's fourteen hundred special effects shots. They only had you know X amount of time, so I'm sure the studio effects houses didn't get as much time as they wanted to. But they're spending two hundred million dollars on this, and it doesn't look great. Um, like the practical stuff looks really good. You can tell um, when that stuff is is done really well, but a lot of it just looks really bad. Um, yeah, I didn't. But, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I didn't think that at all. Did you watch it in four K? Oh, mm-hmm, yeah. Um, I, some of the flying sequences, anytime they're flying around, I agree with you hundred percent. It doesn't look great. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I, I'll say this, the visual effects for the environments and, you know, the, the Hogwarts, um, and anything that is kind of going on around them. I I was, was really impressed with the production design and how the effects Mm -hmm. would accentuate all that. Yeah. And there was some wizard wizardry special effects at the end. Uh, I thought were kind of impressive. Not all of it. I agree with you. There's segments where you go, well, that's kind of dodgy, but yeah. I, I didn't, it never took me out of it. It, I, I don't know. It, I think where there was a bad visual effect, it was within a gorgeous looking environment though. Yeah. Like I think that forest at the, where they're like talking to Hagrid and where the centaurs is, is like, it's overly dark it's impossible to kind of see, but anyway, um, but like Sirius black is my favorite character in this series. And so getting to see him in this is, is, was really nice. Um, I, I think watching individuals shoot spells at each other to me, is just inherently not thrilling. Like it, that action is just never going to thrill me. Um, and they do it quite a bit in this, uh, the showdown at the end, it's like even like oh I'm gonna make this huge fire snake and you're just like it, it just is not thrilling to me like I I think that's just like an inherent weakness of this series is like their main weapon is magic and you have to make that exciting somehow um, and, I, and I think that's a really hard task to do and it just it doesn't really excite me but all the performances I think are great uh, the new sort of head master lady that kind of takes over. She's a great villain. You hate her from the minute she's on screen. Dolores Umbridge. Uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. Umbridge. Uh, obviously like this, like Karen sort of character, really great. Um, all the kid actors I think do a really, really good job. Um, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised at how much I, I really liked this movie. Um, and when I was done with it, I was like, I think I, want to make sure that I go back through the rest of them and, and finish this up. It really kind of grabbed me. I was surprised because I'd never really been much of a Harry Potter guy, but I'd always just kind of seen him in passing and been sort of the, you know, the tag along to see Mm -hmm. stuff like this. So I, I, you know, it never really spoke to me, but when I sat down and watched it today, 
I, like the performances are really good. The story I think is great. Um, you know, I think there's a reason why these books sold so many is they're good stories. And I think they translate pretty well to the, the big screen. So I, I liked it. I liked it quite a bit. So one of the criticisms I've read about this was the, it, it feels like two different stories going on, meaning the first half, some people have said it's kind of boring and all of a sudden it, it sort of changes in the second half and becomes very action oriented. Do, do you feel that same way or do you think it has a more cohesive bind uh, throughout the entire runtime? It it does have that sort of feel. I mean, they do sort of do the, hey, we're going to get our, I'm recruiting my team. We're going to like montage our way to get stronger. And then at the very end, I'm going to need your help, but I kind of don't. Um, but anyway, I thought the most jarring stuff was when he kind of uses magic in the real world with against the Dementors. Oh, in the beginning? You think, okay. You think, oh, this, okay, they're building up to this big conflict and yada, yada, yada. No, that's resolved in the first 25 minutes of the film. Like I was like, oh, this isn't the main conflict. It's, this is just a way to introduce like the ministry and all this stuff. So I didn't find that where it's like this, like literally at the 60 minute mark, we're changing it over and it's more of an action film after that. I kind of like, like the action parts, even though I don't really enjoy watching people, you know, flip their wands at each other, but you know, at least it's better than what else we were getting. Um, but I, I found the most jarring stuff was like that Dementor stuff. Cause I, I was like, Oh, you know, using it in the real world is going to have real consequences. And it doesn't, he, he gets cleared of all charges almost immediately. So not having watched the other films and just kind of jumping into this. Now you saw him, mm -hmm. like you said before, you had no problem in, in trying to catch up who's who or where nope, it was going. Nope. No, I mean, it's it's pretty clear who are the good guys and who's the bad guy. I mean, I think maybe if you don't know the story, like Snape might trip you up a little bit, um, whether or not he's good or bad. But, you know, like the like the long haired blonde guy who just shows up, you're like, oh, yeah, he's bad. He's a bad guy. That's easy to know. The little um, Nazi kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The air, the Aryan nation uh, definitely are the bad guys. So. Yeah, I didn't have any problem following it, um, even though, like, I don't know every minute detail of the story. It was super easy to follow along. I mean, they allude to uh, Robert Pattinson's character dying in the last one, but it's not really even that central to the plot of this one. Like, you can know it or not, and it'll still be fine. Okay. Well, I, I did the opposite. I uh, watched all of them leading up to this. And like I said, I, I'm, I'm going to finish it. I got three more to go. I was kind of hoping I would get done and watch them all before this to be able to talk about it comprehensively. But, I mean, that's not going to happen <laughs> with all the other stuff we're doing. Uh, so one thing that hit me, and I, I felt it by this film, is there is very much a Harry Potter template so far in these movies, right? So every film kind of follows like this specific checklist and uh, Harry gets bullied by his, his muggle family or the Nazi blonde kid uh, Malfoy, I think, or his dad mm -hmm. or something of that nature. So that's gotta be in every film. Ron Draco, Draco Malfoy, Draco Malfoy. That's right. Ron makes jokes and tries to be the goofier version of Han Solo, except 
in Goblet of Fire, where they turn him into a whiny teenager for the first half of the film. And I'll, I'll just say this about Goblet of Fire. So far, it's my least favorite one. And the reason why it's least, my least favorite one is because the first half of the film, Ron Weasley doesn't act like Ron Weasley. And it really sticks out like a sore thumb. Can I be honest with you? Yeah. You're like, you're Ron Weasley. Like, you're like the friend that everyone deserves to have. You're all Ron Weasley. Oh, that's, that may actually be the greatest compliment anybody gave me. <laughs> I think that's why you, you, you know, are, are gravitated towards Ron. He is. He, he's my favorite character, but I mean, I, I, he does remind me of that. Um, it's Han Solo without the swagger, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it's, it, he's, he's really good, but, um, Hermione, she's always going to run in with information to forward the plot. That happens quite a bit, almost well in every film. Yeah, her 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 magic power is expositorio. <laughs> yeah, expositorio. Uh, Voldemort is trying to kill Harry, but never succeeds. Every once in a while, he's gonna get a hold of somebody close to Harry, and that person dies. But every one of these films so far is always Voldemort's doing X, and you got to stop by the end of the film. And no then, one believes that he's returning. Yep, and Voldemort gets away, kind of thing. Right, it's never stopped. Uh, magic is funny in the beginning and then it turns serious in the end. That's how it always works. The school gets a new dark arts teacher every freaking year. Like that is the position, you know, it's only going to last a year. Right. And, and that dark arts teacher is always at the central plot of every film. So whoever the new dark arts teacher is, that's what the movie's going to be centered around more or less. You think Do you have Christmas on there. Do I have Christmas? Um, Christmas, Well, I mean, it's a school year, so it goes through Christmas every time. Uh, Hagrid introduces everybody to a new mythic monster in every film. You've got to have that sequence. When things look their worst and Harry's going to lose whatever battles he's in, um, Dusex Machina enters, right? So what, what that means is seemingly unsolvable problems in a story is suddenly and or abruptly resolved by an unexpected and unlikely occurrence. And you get two of these in this film, <laughs> right? So just when everything looks like it's just it's it's not gonna it's not gonna pan out well for Harry, here comes the Order of Phoenix, and then when everything just kind of looks dire for that one, then here comes Dumbledore. So it's this this plot device that at the end of each of these films, it's never really Harry so much defeating whatever it is. It's this device that comes in at the end that he's assisted by to get through whatever that trial or tribulation is. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Dumbledore always gives Yoda like advice at the end of the film. And uh, you mentioned Christmas. So you have the seasonality, right? So Christmas, you can kind of tell you're in the middle of the film because they're Christmas and uh, everybody goes home for vacation. And and that's summer break. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's pretty much every Harry Potter film so far. The first five follows that very specific uh, formula. And the first two, I was surprised watching the first two, how similar they are, even down to the damn Quidditch match, which again, mm-hmm. absolutely, absolutely hate that, that sport. I'm right there with you. I, I don't like the Quidditch stuff. Yeah. And, I think and, my big problem is, is it, it just looks terrible. Yeah. It's not even, it looks terrible. It's just the rules are the dumbest thing ever. Um, and I look, if anybody writes in to explain 
Quidditch to me. I'm just, I'm not reading that email. We're deleting it. We're deleting that email. <laughs> so, uh, so I'm going, I'm going through this. I'm up, I'm up to movie five. And I guess the question is past the first film. Cause the first film establishes the world, builds the world. You get a lot of, Oh my gosh, wizards. Oh, the train station, all this other stuff. Right. So Daniel Radcliffe, Harry Potter's walking around like, Oh my gosh, look at all this cool stuff. And then you get that story. Uh, I, I guess the question then becomes for each of these films, do any of the filmmakers bring something interesting to the proceedings? So each one of these directors so far, cause this is the first Peter Yates film, they're doing the Harry Potter checklist, but then you got to ask yourself, well, what is each director, screenwriter, or even actor inject that feels fresh? And that could be new visuals, interesting subplot, a nuanced performance, um, comedy, I was surprised how the third one, I laughed a lot. I, I think that's why I really like that third one. I, I think it's a really interesting story. I think the performance mm-hmm. are the best in that, but I was really surprised that the dark comedy really got to me. It, it wasn't sort of in your face slapsticky. It, it was a combination of subtle. Do you know who directs Prisoner? Yeah. Um, it's Alfonso Caron. Yeah. That's why it's so good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it stands out. He Big has time. no business directing that film, and he does, and it 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 definitely stands out. To it me. does. Uh, so, in in full disclosure, I didn't remember a thing, not a thing, about any of these films except a little bit of the third one, to the point in Goblet of Fire, there's this twist that happens, right? And towards the end of the, towards the end of the film, when the twist is about ready to occur, I turn to Tabitha, I'm like, oh man, I. I think the dark arts teacher is this guy and and that might be and she's like are you serious <laughs> and i'm like yeah she goes you're an idiot that was like she's like that was halfway during the film i'm like well i'm just figuring it out right now and this is me having seen the film in the theaters when it came out totally forgot about it that's how that's how much of an impression yeah and, and i've been one to make fun of this film series because i just don't get it outside of that third one um but here's the thing Watched the first one and I'm like, oh, that that was that was pretty good. I liked it more than I remember. Watch the second one and go, ooh, that's kind of like the first one, but man, I really liked it too. Uh, and of course, Ron Weasley helps big time. Get to the third one and I'm like, well, that's a damn masterpiece, man. That if you're talking about films within a franchise uh, and you've got Empire Strikes Back in Star Wars, you've got this third film in this series that I think matches the quality of something like empire strikes back. It's that good. It is good. Um, goblet of fire. I have problems with, I, I actually think it's the weakest, but it's okay. And then order of Phoenix, uh, is, is actually kind of interesting. It, it surprised me. So here's, here's the stuff that I thought was different and unique. I'm, I'm curious what you think. You mentioned Dolores Umbridge. I think that's one of the best, villains uh that they've created and it does an amazing job of doing this representation of overreaching authority and Mm -hmm. i i think that is a fantastic subplot uh as a matter of fact it turns like that character and that subplot and everything that she does you do feel a little bit of that political statement coming in about authority And sort of the punk rock feel from, you know, the Hogwarts Academy and especially Harry Potter and his friends. And I I've, 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 I was getting like a 
a tinge of like anti-conservatism in this as well. Yeah. Like with, you know, banning of certain things, especially in today's climate. It's a little, it was like, whoa, okay. They, they were going for this in 07 and here we are now with, you know, stuff that, oh, you know, we're indoctrinating this and this and that. So, yeah. Yeah. It just, it's, it's funny when you read about um, what was going on leading up to this film and then it just totally makes sense, right? So those comments that we talked about, um, July 7th and 2005, it, it obviously affected Yates and the actors and the screenwriter and everything else informing this. But I, th- I think it's a really good example. Like when people talk about the first half of this film and they say, well, it's kind of boring. To me, the first half of this film is actually some of the most interesting stuff that they've done because they're they're trying to talk about this theme of overreaching authority and that knee jerk reaction to like bad things and what it can turn into. And I think it's very poignant for, for every decade that goes by. And yeah, I, there's I, a, there's a bad thing going on here, but Hey, to eliminate that bad thing, we're just not going to talk about it essentially yeah. <laughs> with Voldemort. Like, you know, we don't say his name and all this stuff. Like, Oh, if we just don't talk about it, it won't, you know, it won't happen. And I, I, I just, I didn't remember any of that within this film series. And then to re-experience that by watching it, I'm like, wow, this, this kind of elevates the material for me. Uh, and it's a really good example of where that type of messaging, I mean, we've talked about this before. Sometimes when movies just put it in your face and you're like, oh, yep, here's the message. I got it. Right. I, I think that is the problem with a lot of modern films that try and tackle this. They just they don't do it gracefully, but here's a an example of a film that's trying to tackle one of those subjects in the way it tackles sort of its political undercurrent. It does it with such grace and through this amazing character of Dolores Umbridge uh, that you have fun with it, but that message resonates and and it really works in the service of the plot too. Yeah, it also helps that they're kids. Like all kids, at some point in time, have have revolted against some sort of authority figure. It's just a natural way of, of growing up. So that also helps too, that we're looking through the eyes of babes essentially. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the, the other thing I was really surprised is how many moments will show up in this film. And you always get these little bits of information about a character's motivation backstory, or you learn a little bit about them and it's not expository. I mean, Hermione can be very expository in terms <laughs> of, hey, I found this. We got to go here. I get that part of it. But in terms of character development, I was surprised how you get these little tidbits of information. And it does a really good job of showing versus telling. And a great example is with um, Alan Rickman's character, Snape. So he gets a little backstory by Harry invading his memories when they're doing this exercise, right? And what I, what I love about it is you get to see this Snape character interacting with Harry's parents and just those images and what is happening within that memory, all of a sudden it tells you a lot about this character and he's not sitting there with some monologue or something of that nature. You're just seeing these visions of what it was like for him to be at that school and what his interaction was with Harry's parents. And, and all of a sudden you go, Oh, I understand Snape now and his relationship with Harry and why it's tainted. And it was done within a matter of minutes. Yep. Yep. Just also so the, 
Yeah, the the character of Neville is Neville Longbottom. I think is a, a yeah. kind of a fascinating character in this one. Harry Potter's girlfriend Cho, I think is her name. Mm-hmm. Like another part of that, like this the story initially doesn't tell you that she was basically they used a spell on her to tell the truth. You learn that like in later, and then we kind of can assume that that resolution will come in the next film or down the road somewhere. Yeah, and, and even the introduction of this Luna Lovegood character, there's this mystery to her, and they don't try to explain it. And you go, is this is this girl ditzy? Is she? But but she has this little wisdom that kind of shows up at the end of the film, and you're like, wow, uh, I I just, I just didn't expect that. She's out there eating those weird mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, but going back to Alan Rickman, I mean, he is the definition of no small parts, in my opinion what he does with his character in all of these films. And by all of these films, I mean the first five that I've seen or cause I am, I'm just telling you right now, I remember zero about the next ones and I'm, wow. ki- okay. I'm kind of excited to, to revisit watch them it for the first time all over. Cause again. it's going to feel like that. Yeah. But uh, man, Alan Rickman, you, you just give him a little bit of screen time and all of a sudden he becomes one of the most memorable characters out of this entire franchise. And he has probably the least amount of screen time compared to obviously our three leads, right? He has no business being in this film, but I'm glad he is. Like, I literally am so happy to see him, but his like stature, he should not be this such like this part in this film, but he is, and he kills it. It is amazing. I, I agree with you. Rickman and Gary Oldman, like, Oh yeah. Gary Oldman's, Oldman's another one. <laughs> it's like serious black. He's just, Oh yeah. I'm going to throw that into my repertoire too. I'm going to be this amazing character of Harry's Godfather. Yeah. This is, no business, no business being in this film. Yeah. And you know, I know Brandon Gleason had, had way more screen time in the previous film, but it's so much fun to see him and that character back here. Uh, but yeah, you, you just, you cannot go wrong with this cast and they deliver at every turn of this film. The performances mm-hmm. I think are just as amazing as all the visual effects. I mean, in, in all honesty, you believe this world, not because in, in, just a little hyperbole here, right? As cool as the, the, the creatures are Hogwarts castle and all that other stuff. You only believe that to be real because of all of the performances in this film of people. Yeah, the people believe it's real. Yeah, yeah a, a, absolutely. hundred uh, percent. Now the, the only, the only maybe big problem I have with this is a, as much as I love all these characters, I love Snape. I love this Luna love good character that comes in real eccentric. I think the series feels bloated when it's not centered on Harry, Ron, and Hermione. I really feel like that trio and their relationship from a storytelling perspective um, gets a little shortchanged in this film. And this, so this film starts to feel kind of plot heavy to me. Like I remember one of my criticisms about the Harry Potter after this series, after the third one is when you get to Goblet of Fire, now it really feels like event, event, plot, 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 plot. And I don't, Ron's turn of being kind of whiny and then all of a sudden he's not whiny anymore. It, it all of a sudden feels like, well, that, that, I don't know where that came from. And then it <laughs> turns on a dime and it feels like, okay, him being that way was just a device to isolate Harry, to get him to the next plot point. And then Ron's um, attitude changes in order to kind of forward the story to a next 
thing. I think this one does that same thing. It does it better than Goblet of Fire. Yeah, it's I think not as clunky as Goblet of Fire. Yeah, this one's not clunky, but I still feel it a little bit. Um, and it and there are well that that whole ministry trial thing in the beginning. Like if you took that out, would you really would you really lose anything from a storytelling perspective? I don't think so. And then you could develop some of these characters a little bit more and you could definitely focus on Harry and Hermione and Ron more, which like you said, that's the reason we're we're checking in on this is to see their relationship yeah. and their dynamic. And yeah, like you were introducing so many characters into this movie and it feels like a lot of them are just getting shortchanged because there's so many. I mean, there's like a hundred people in this movie and you're like, I don't know who that is. I don't know who that is. Now to be fair, like they do that in like star Wars and stuff, but you know, it, I don't feel to like this degree we're introducing so many new people, not only just new characters, but they have like, they play like a major part in of the plot and they're moving the plot along. And like, I barely know who these people are. Um, and it, it's not because like they were in the last film. It's like, they're brand new to this film. So yeah, I was, yeah, I was wondering I, I, I what you think. It's kind of bloated. Yeah. I was wondering what your experience would be like jumping into it and not having those first four, four films to set it up is that, you know, you would get a character and you like it and you go, well, if you really like that character, you got to go back to this film because, well, I mean, luckily the overarching plot of this film is pretty broad. Yeah. Real, you know, so, but you know, maybe the C and D plots, I, I don't get as much out of it because I don't have the knowledge that most people do, but like for the most part, the overarching stuff is it's pretty broad. You know, it's good versus evil. It's we have to go get this MacGuffin and this and that and all this. So yeah, no, I get it. And, and you know, as these characters mature because you're getting into the teenage years, right? The story's maturing. So mm -hmm. it's not, it's not going to have that awe and charm of maybe the first film. And uh, may, maybe the humor is getting lost because the stakes are, are gently being raised or not gently. They are being raised right with mm -hmm. each film gets a little bit yeah, more people dangerous are and people are dying. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the only, the only problem I'm starting to have with the series at this point is I feel like it's all about plot and less about the characters. And I, I feel I felt kind of cold after Goblet of Fire, even though you had the Robert Pattinson character die and it, and it really upped the ante and you're like, oh, wow, the stakes are really high now. I get it. Um, I, I started to feel like the magic was fading a bit. And I think this is a, a 10 times better film than Goblet of Fire, but I still like Goblet of Fire. Mm -hmm. I, I still feel like this storytelling is, is a little cold and sterile. The movie I think looks great, has a lot going for it. Um, but I gotta be honest, like I'm really, I'm really curious to get to the next three films because if I remember anything, I remember that bloated feeling that I start to feel here just taking over like the rest of the series. And just it and again. I could be totally wrong about this and totally fall in love with the net last three films. Cause I, I gotta be honest with you. I really enjoy these first five films. I, I think they're really good. And anybody who's ever hung out with me for like the last decade and heard me complain about this is probably just falling out of the chair <laughs> going, wait, Troy likes Harry Potter. Yeah. I, I gotta say, I, I like these first five films a lot. I'm really curious where these three are going, but I gotta be honest. Um, if, if that, 
relationship between those three start to feel shortchanged mentally. I start checking out a little bit. Yeah. I mean, it's the most intriguing part, but yeah, I, I was going to ask you if you would continue on and, and and finish the series. And it sounds like that is a definite yes from you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's got me, I've never been fascinated in those fantastic beast films, but I'm kind of caught up in this world right now. But again, I'm caught up in this world simply because of the performances, the acting, I think is stellar. I just really, really enjoy watching Harry Ron and Hermione. And if there, if that is maintained through the rest of the three films, I think I'm gonna have a great time. Mm-hmm. And, and if more time is spent on that and, and, you know, that's the thing with these franchises. I mean, the studio is like, well, let's, let's really make a lot of money out this and, and keep it going. I mean, we saw that with the Hobbit films, right? Lord of the Rings is such a big success. Let's take one book and turn it into three movies. And I don't think it's very successful. Um, I'm, I'm wondering what these next three films are going to be like. Uh, but in, in my head, I'm like, Troy, you didn't, you didn't like it the last time you saw it. And I think the reason why you didn't like it is because it did feel kind of cold and sterile and it was all plot, but I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. I'm definitely going to keep going. Uh, me too. Yeah. I just, I, I gotta tell you, Brad, I'm super surprised. I like this. <laughs> I gotta be honest. I, I crapped all over Harry Potter for a long time after my first viewing, except for the third one. And now I'm like, yeah, I, I was, uh, I was wrong about these first five films. Um, yeah, I, I wholeheartedly disagree with you on those first two. I don't like them very much, but I like so far, I like three, four and five quite a bit. I agree with you on four being of those middle three, the worst one. Um, I still think three is a masterpiece and yeah. by far so far the best entry of the series. I, I, I gotta say like one and two, I think the reason why I liked it is they're, they feel very much like the same film and it very much feels like a Chris Columbus film. Mm-hmm. But again, it goes down to those performances and I think there there's enough humor and charm to get me through those. Even though if you take a step back and really look at that checklist I don't think Chris Columbus handles everything on that checklist um, to the perfection that even Yates does in this film. But there's, there's still, he's bringing something there and it is bringing sort of that Chris Columbus magic that he does with some of his properties and content. It's there and, and I do enjoy it. But it, it definitely, you can feel that maturity and progression coming through um, and, you know, <laughs> I I'd be, I'd be all up for a Ron Weasley film to be quite honest right now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Robert Pattinson's character, I believe is Cedric Duggar. Yeah. Diggory Diggory. Yeah. He was quite, he, I would say he was one of the highlights of the last film for that goblet of fire. He's, you could tell he was, he was going to be something special, Mm -hmm. especially from an acting perspective. Agreed. Yep. Um, the wizard battle, I, I wanted to ask, so you said the special effects weren't all that great. I, I gotta be honest. Uh, although I don't necessarily know what was happening in that scene, like why some people could block and others couldn't. And then somebody just like, Oh, I, I didn't block that. And I died. Uh, I actually like that final climax outside of the deuce ex machina stuff that happens, you know, twice. I actually thought the, the visuals were kind of impressive the fire dragon, how they were using it in context of their spells. I think it made sense between, you know, the, the, was it Dumbledore and um, Snape? 
no, it wasn't Snape. It was uh, Voldemort. Voldemort. Yeah. yeah, those two going at it, I, I thought was kind of cool. And uh, I, I, I enjoyed that climax. Some of the effects are kind of dodgy, but I was, I was excited how Yates handled it. And I thought it was a really, uh, I don't know, nice injection of, of some thrills into the franchise. Yeah. I just, I, it's just never going to excite me. Like people flipping their wrists to do You're more of a lightsaber or space wizard. Give me guy. A lightsaber. Yes. Give me. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I guess that's another thing is like Harry Potter's just kind of a, a riff on star Wars in a way. So, well, star Wars is the, uh, hero's journey. So yes, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's all based in Greek mythology, right? In some yeah. regard. So what is there like only six original stories or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, hey, look, all, all the comparisons that you make to Harry Potter, star Wars, it's there. Um, I, I maybe, <laughs> maybe because it's so different than the space wizard stuff that I enjoyed it a little bit more. Yeah. Like now, I, here's a question for you. Okay. Would you go, if you finish the series and you like it enough, would you go back and read the books to get more context? Uh, could you see yourself going down that road? To So everybody, did you read the books? I did not, no. Okay, yeah, everybody that I talked to who have read the books and have seen the film, they love them both, but you get this whole, oh my gosh, the books are so amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good question. I... I almost part of me would say, yes, I would like to go and, and just see what else is there. But at the same time, I would be fine never reading the books and just watching the movies again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Letting them be separate. Now I can tell you this. There's no way in hell. Well, unless we do it for this show that I'm going to watch any of those ones that come after this series. I'm, I'm curious about them now only because David Yates directed them. So that yeah. may change in three movies when I finish the Harry Potter series and go, oh, wow, Yates peaked on his first film and the rest stink. I don't, I don't know if that's going to be true or not. But, hey, look, if, if the other films are of this quality and I enjoy it, I'm, I'm probably going to keep going to see what he did with uh, the other movies. I think Jude Law is in him, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I like Jude Law quite a bit, so why not? I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Um, it's... <laughs> It's it's interesting. I would still watch Lord of the Rings over this any day of the week, but I but I gotta say, uh, I even after I'm done watching this, I could see myself in like another five years revisiting the series again. Mm-hmm. Yep, totally. Just just like Star Wars and everything else, I think it's a really solid franchise. Agreed. Yeah, I I have younger kids, and I'm like, I think this one would probably speak to them more than star Wars. Initially, I think when they're a little bit older, maybe star Wars will be their bag, but um, this is probably going to be their first sort of introduction to a series of films. Okay. Yeah. You can't go wrong with that, man. But then they got to, they got to jump over to Zatoichi. Yeah, we'll get there. Don't worry. (laughs) What other notes? What else did you have from like a commentary or, or thoughts on the film? Uh, that's pretty much it. I mean, I was, I don't know about you, but like, I was surprised when I turned this on, how sort of invested I was in kind of after that first 25 minutes. And that says a lot, like to overcome that sort of clunky first 20 minutes for them to it, like to grab me again, says a lot about the story. Um, 
because I think it falters at the beginning. But yeah, I was like right on board as soon as, as soon as we kind of get over that, and the ministry is kind of introduced as the the bad guy and all this stuff. So yeah, I was I was pleasantly surprised, man. Does it make you want to go look at Yates's other stuff pre Harry Potter, like any of those TV films? I might, I might, um, especially if it has a little bit of a political tinge to it. Um, I might check it out, but you know, it, it's not going to be tomorrow, but I'll, I'll definitely put it on my radar. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind checking out something just to see, well, what was it that they saw in his earlier work that made him think that he could just dive into? Cause if you're thinking about how much money these movies were making and how big of a franchise it was, to me, it feels like a little bit of a gamble to grab that guy and put yeah. him into this. Unless they thought, hey, he's look, we, we can just tell him what to do and he's going to do exactly what the studio says. Well, it, it makes you kind of wonder because you would you brought up like 14 million or 14 million, 1400 studio uh, special effects shots. And of course, they pre biz all those. And you're like, so what exactly in the action is he directing? So is he just directing sort of the character stuff? Probably so. So he's directing like 60% of the film, but you know, it's fine. Like, I think he did a, a good job. Um, it just makes you wonder a lot of these with these sort of like special effects, heavy directors, like what are they actually directing for the action? But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I find it interesting too. When you actually look at the screenwriter and go, okay, the, the guy that wrote green lantern wrote this, that doesn't necessarily compute in my brain. No, it does not. And so I'm wondering, like, how much did Yates, if if he really had content before then that was political heavy, how much did he influence the screenwriter in what they were kind of committing um, from a story perspective? Yeah, and you can't even say, like, well, the source material for Order of the Phoenix is so much better. Like, there's been a lot of good Green Lantern stories that you could pull from. So it's not even like the source material is bad, right? Like, yeah, no. A I, lot of- it's, it's interesting because... I look at contact and green lantern and some of these other films, it's like, okay, there, there's some inconsistencies in that work, bring on Yates and then take the story because, you know, just like we talked about in production and development, their, their biggest challenge was to pare it down. It's mm-hmm. the biggest book, but it's the shortest film out of the series. So, um, I, I don't know. It's, that's kind of fascinating. It's interesting. This, you know, now that we're talking about it, this is one of those I might go back and just listen to the commentary to. Yeah. That would, I think, are there directors, are there longer cuts of these, like the, like the Lord of the Rings? I'm sure there, there is. Cuts? I'm sure there is. I just, I I bought this um, series on Blu-ray when it came out so the kids could watch it and then turned around and got the, um, 4K. the 4K stuff. Yeah. Because we were going to review it. Although my, I apparently picked up one where the digital codes expired. Ooh. Warner Brothers. They shouldn't yeah. expire. Um, okay. Well, let me just ask a question since this financially bombed and didn't make any money and lost the studio a ton of film. Do you think people, do you think people should revisit this and, and is the fifth installment in the Harry Potter series, Harry Potter and the order of the Phoenix? Is it a bomb? Uh, I definitely think this is not a bomb. I think if, if you're like me and have been sort of <laughs> out sort of on an Island not really big into Harry Potter and all that, I, I definitely think, um, Jumping in, I disagree with you wholeheartedly on those first two, but once you get to that third one, I think it really starts picking up steam and, and really starts going places. So, yeah, I, I definitely think this is not a bomb. I think, um, yeah, I so far this is my second favorite uh, Harry Potter film. Okay. All right. 
I, I might agree with you actually kind of, I mean, I like the first two more than you, but I think, I think this one's a better quality. So I'm, I'm with you same corner. It's not a bomb. I'm really glad I revisited these and I'm, I'll, I'll let everybody know how the other three go. We'll do okay. a little yeah, follow up. I'm, yeah. <laughs> um, we got some listener feedback, Brad from Nathan. Okay. So he says, hi guys, other than horror hound weekend, are there any film festivals that you get excited about attending any that you track winners of? I'm curious because I found it to be one of the best ways to find more obscure films with less noise. If any other listeners have favorites, I'd be curious to hear about them so I can add them to my list. Best Nathan. Uh, speaking of Warhound, that's right around the corner, right? Mm-hmm. We'll be there this weekend. We will be there this weekend. I don't know. I, do you, do you have any festivals that you track or? I mean, kind of the big three, right? So like Sundance, Cannes, Toronto International Film Festival, TIFF, like Tribeca, maybe um, South by South by Southwest is another one. I might, it just kind of depends, right? Um, I used to like back in the day, right? Cause that's where, you know, Pulp Fiction like started to gain steam. And some of these films, like you just heard about them because there was such this word of mouth, but now it seems like there's so many yeah. that it's hard to like kind of sift through all the stuff to get, get the, like the five that are like the best. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I, I'd say the two that I follow South by Southwest, definitely, because I think the films that come out of that, that people talk about are in my wheelhouse. And then the other one is TIFF. Mm-hmm. Those, those are about the only two that I actively pay attention to of even our friends who go and review films um, like Josh, et cetera, who's at South by Southwest. I'm, I'm actively all over his Twitter feeds or uh, Facebook to just see, okay, what movie did he watch? He's coming out of it. What is he going to say about it? And I, I value his opinion big time. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm always excited about South by Southwest and, and especially what he's going to come to Maryland uh, film festival, which used to be out of the parkway. The parkway is closed right now until I think next year was always an interesting one, but you weren't going to see anything outside of some like independent dramas and, and more East coast, like local stuff. Yeah. Horror Hound, for those that are interested, this is a really, really, really interesting film festival. Um, I really enjoy it simply because you're going to see stuff. It's it's going to be science fiction, horror related. It's all over the place. The quality, the quality is all over the place. Yes, it is. Um, Brad will just actively walk out of movies when we go. <laughs> Um, but you know, I'll also say for, for that festival, you will, you will find some gems. You, you really will. And stuff that you don't expect at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've seen some really good stuff there. I mean, I remember seeing martyrs there and I remember seeing Tucker and Dale, the work prints there, right? Did they show that there? Yeah. Yeah. We Uh, saw that. And a few other films I, I vividly remember seeing. Um, I think there is such a cool factor to seeing something that like most people haven't, even when you get to a film that's like just releasing, like it's been seen by so many people at that point in time to get it to that point. But like these films are like fresh off the, you know, the, the editing bay. It's that's kind of really sort of cool. You feel like you have an inside track to the director. And sometimes you do, sometimes they'll be like, Hey, what'd you think? And you'd be like, 
you need to cut this. You need to do this. Like they're soliciting feedback. Um, and that's pretty cool as well. Yeah. I, I would say the other one that really surprised me, I know we saw at horror hound was uh, cold in July, which mm. was this little thriller that IFC had put out, um, that they, I think debuted there before it kind of hit, but th- that's the stuff I, I get excited about. And, yeah. um, yeah, I don't know. I, I would love to, to do a film festival and actually program like older films that did well, just the whole premise of this one. Right. Yeah. So even go back and um, talk about stuff like Brigsby bear or love and monsters. I I think it would be interesting to go back and say, you could sprinkle a couple of films in there that um, people may not have seen that they should have seen and get a little bit, uh, I, I don't know, second chance to them but then also throw some independent stuff from those same filmmakers. I would love to go to a film festival like that. So if anybody knows that kind of film festival that has a combination of old films, that very specific thing I want. Yeah. That very specific thing of old films that bombed plus new ones from hopefully the same directors and filmmakers. I would love that. But yeah, if if anybody else has any favorites that they want to share, Nathan's looking for those recommendations. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna record an extra episode this month, Brad. Yeah, <laughs> we are. What, what are we, we doing? Are. We are going to review for Breaking Brad, which we're recording tomorrow. Uh, we're gonna review Laquisha, and I have seen it. Troy, you have now seen it. Yeah, I believe Sammy was watching it the other day. And he watched. He Jose watched. Yeah, was watching it tonight. So, yeah, we're gonna talk about that film. <sighs> full full disclosure it may be the last episode we ever do <laughs> it's uh it's a thing troy it's a thing yeah you ever you ever i don't know come up with an idea and then you and do immediately it immediately regret it and then go this is the stupidest idea like oh my gosh i thought so i'll share this now just as a preview of what you can expect when you hear that episode Tabitha, who I'd shown the trailer to and was like, hey, we're going to torture Brad with this one. Her response was, wow, that, that looks really good. And I, I want to sit down and watch that with you. So she did and uh, watched it in one setting. And I thought by the end of that film, I was going to be the subject of a true crime podcast because she was going to murder me <laughs> for taking 90 minutes of her life um, away from her in that fashion. So yeah, you have to check back in for our thoughts on this. It, that That's going to be a doozy. That is going to be a doozy conversation. Yeah. Yeah. It may, yep. it may have broke all of us. I don't know. And Sammy has said some things in our text message thread that have left me sort of bewildered. I'm a little so. speechless on some of his comments. I, I will agree with you as well. I can't <clears> wait <throat> to get into it. And of course, Jose is going to love it. Yeah. Uh, what else? But for not a bomb regular yes. for next week, we Troy are going to do. Oh, that was my pick. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what are we doing? We're going to do 1991's action comedy film starring our man, the myth, the legend, Bruce Willis. It is Hudson Hawk, Troy. We're doing it. So these are my favorite kind of movies to talk about because uh, when you get a star who's at the height of their stardom and starts to kind of get these pet projects going – Mm-hmm. and falls in love with the material in themselves and then shows that to the world. 
sometimes you get some of the most interesting worst movies you've ever seen or you just get some classic gems but i'm really i'm really excited to talk about hudson hawk talk yeah, about it early 90s again which we've seen to be doing a lot this year so yeah talk about a vanity project man <sighs> yeah that's gonna be fun it's something uh who else should people be listening to yeah if you want to if you like our show and you want to hear other podcasts kind of like ours uh please listen to the gentleman's guide to midnight cinema watch skip plus the vhs files podcast night of the living podcast the backlook cinema podcast and the mixtape podcast and let them know that the guys from not a bomb sent you please yes uh i i do want to do a quick shout out to everybody we the the response on megaforce was a lot of fun i yep. I, I gotta yeah. be honest the comments on the social media posts the direct messages we got um we got another person really pushing for what was it uh the lucy Liu action film with antonio banderas x ballistic versus sever mm-hmm. yeah they really want us to tackle that one but um thank I you at one point in time we said we were going to do zeros on on rotten tomatoes and I, we'll we'll probably have to do that because it seems like people wanted us to do that so yeah uh but i i just want to thank everybody for all of their stories about megaforce and uh encourage anybody who's even remotely interested in owning uh, just owning that you know get the umbrella release we we're going to be talking I'm, I'm surprised about this we're actually going to be talking about a lot of stuff that umbrella is releasing this year uh i my box of bert is from umbrella is like on its way here i cannot yeah. i cannot wait for that but again thank you everybody for reaching out and brad if if anybody has recommendations or they want to send us listener feedback and have us read on the air. How do they get a hold of us? Yeah, that's not about pod at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can go to not a hit the contact us button and leave us a comment or suggestion there. Awesome. Well, I, what's the incantation or spell to like fly away or exit? Do you know that? No, nothing. Ooh, I, I, I don't. I don't. Okay. Well, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. Thank you for playing along. Go back, revisit those Harry Potter films. They're fantastic. Hey, hey listen, look, go back to those Harry Potter films. I don't know if you heard. They're pretty good. Yeah, I know that one that we just talked about bombed in a pretty big manner, but I'm telling you, give it a second chance. Uh, if you missed it in the theaters, you might want to revisit it. it it's actually pretty good. And then come back uh, next week when we, oh boy, that one's that one's a bit of a train wreck. I really can't wait to talk about that one. I'm really curious where you're going to land on it too. But next week, Hudson Hawk. So go seek that one out. We'll see you then. Don't lose your head. Step to my step to my outro, you I jerk. Shut up. <laughs>